Again, our scripture passage comes from the book of Exodus, beginning with chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 10. This is God's word. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. And if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes, and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would become of him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, 
Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me. And I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. This is the word of the Lord. Would you lift your hands with me as we come to God in prayer? Lord, we pray that through your word, you would strike mighty blows in our souls and that you would drive us to greater faith in you, that you would free us from the things that bind us, that you would motivate us to live the life of love and service, and that you would give us courage to stand in the truth of your word, no matter what it costs us. We love you and pray that you would grow that love during this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Redemption stories are everywhere. In fact, Hollywood has made billions of dollars on selling redemption. We can think of movies like Shawshank Redemption or Les Miserables, The Pursuit of Happiness. Remember that one? Forrest Gump is a story of redemption. Gladiator, Saving Private Ryan, West Side Story. We love a good redemption story, don't we? A story where someone goes from rags to riches. A story where someone realizes their true identity. A story where someone's life turns around, where they become what they were not. Some significant change takes place in their life. We love that. We love when a character rises from pain and disaster into joy and success. And though we love a good redemption story, there is no story of redemption that has been referenced more than the Exodus. There's no story that's, that's a redemption story that's been referenced as much as Exodus. There is a universal appeal to Exodus through time and around the globe. People from various cultures experiencing a variety of situations have turned to its message and their difficulties. Think about it. Here's a little sampling. The Protestant reformers of Europe framed escape from religious tyranny as their exodus. The Puritans made appeal to the exodus as they left the strictures of England for America. Latin American theology, South African black theology, Indian Dalit theology, they all appeal to the book of Exodus as a foundation for shedding light on the lives of their marginal communities. They all use the book of Exodus to speak into the lives of those who live on the margins and who face oppression and who are down and out. Enslaved African-Americans appealed to the Exodus and cried out to God for release from their bondage and entrance into the promised land of the north, only to find out that this would not be a true promised land. The Exodus narrative was used by civil rights leaders in their struggle through the 50s and 60s. The Exodus story helped to create and maintain all of these various communities by elevating their suffering and their oppression to the cosmic level 
where they recognized that God saw and that God would act. They tied into a cosmic story of God's concern for people who are in such situations. They saw in the Exodus story a paradigm for understanding their own lives. And they used that to bolster their hope in the most depressing and despairing situations. The story of the Exodus gave them a stubborn hope and a conviction that God cared and God would act. There's a universal appeal to Exodus. And the reason why there is a universal appeal to Exodus is because there is an obvious universal need for a way out. The word Exodus is the, is the word that was placed on, on the book uh, that, that is before us today when it was translated into Greek by scholars uh, way back a millennia ago. The, the, the title of the book is, is literally, uh, these are the names of in Hebrew. That's the title of the book, but it didn't sound compelling enough. And so the translators into Greek, they gave a title to this book. They called it Ex Hadas. It's a Greek compound word that means the way out. And isn't it true that that's what we're all looking for? That's a universal experience. We are all looking for a way out of something. There, there is something in each of our lives that makes us feel stuck, that makes us feel captive, that makes us feel chained up like there's no way out, like there's no way forward. And all of us feel the need for a way out. We know this feeling all too well when we are caught by someone or something that's too powerful for us. But we can turn to the pages of this true story to gain a stubborn hope and a strong conviction that God sees and God acts for people like us. And he wants to sustain our hope in the face of insurmountable evils, seemingly insurmountable obstacles and strongholds in our lives. Though Hollywood is known for selling redemption, God is known for giving it away for free. And that's what we're all invited into today as we begin the book of Exodus. We approach this text through two points this morning in which we see a timeless problem and a priceless solution. A timeless problem and a priceless solution. So let's look at our first point. A timeless problem. Now, the text begins, interestingly enough, it begins as the continuation of a story that comes before. Not to get overly technical with you, but the very beginning of the book of Exodus starts with, in Hebrew, what is known as a vav consecutive. And what that means, come on, Paul, you out there? All right, come on. I did that for you, baby. All right. A vav consecutive is what you use in Hebrew to continue a story that's already rolling. It's just like, and then, and then, and then, that's what's happening. And you know what it's doing? It's connecting us back to the story of Genesis. We need to connect into the story of creation, fall, and then God's renewed promise to Abraham that he will give him land, seed, and blessing. The continuing story with Isaac and Jacob and his sons. This is tying us into the story that comes before. But a new wrinkle is coming. A conflict is coming. It's setting us up to discover 
The the next stage in the journey, if you look at verses seven and eight, you see the turning point. It's the setup and the turning point. There is a miraculous multiplication of the Israelites. Look at verse seven. I just want you to notice something real quick. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. It is taking every possible bit of language you can to emphasize the fact that they were populating, okay? They were populating. And why is that important? Because that was a critical piece of the promise that was made to Abraham. That was a critical piece that stretched all the way back to creation. The call of God to his people, be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth. Replicate my glory and my presence and my worship around the world. He resumes that calling with Abraham And now God is making good on his promise. But the turning point comes with the rise of a new Egyptian dynasty. Okay, there's a new dynasty. And if you look at verses nine through 14, you see this new dynasty has a different lens on God's people. See, God's people up to this point have been nothing but a blessing to Egypt. Their presence in Egypt literally saved Egypt. Beginning with Joseph. This was the presence of God's people and wherever they went, God blessed those who blessed them. That's what he said he would do. But now it's about to be the curse on those who curse his people. Because what happens in verses 9 through 14 is a shift. Now there's something, there's a new policy that's going on. There's a new, there's a new governmental leadership in Egypt that takes a different outlook on those people. Look at it. When you look at the way that Pharaoh frames up the Israelites, look at this, look at the text. He says, verse nine, and he said, that's Pharaoh to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. What warrant did he have For that interpretation of Israel. No, it was a product of his own fears and xenophobia. Look at this. Fear, suspicion, and conquest are the result of the way he views the other. Pharaoh takes on the mentality. He's the most powerful man in the land. And he takes on the mentality of a vulnerable victim. And once he's convinced himself that he's the victim here, he can make an excuse For doing any manner of wickedness to those people. When you see yourself as the vulnerable victim, you always see the other as the threatening competitor. And this was never meant to be the way that human beings were to relate to one another. And this controls his treatment of Israel. He has plan A, plan B, and plan C. Let's look at him. How does he deal with his fear, his suspicion of those people? Well, first, he enacts a policy of violent enslavement of God's people. That language, he ruthlessly enslaved them, that has overtones of violence to it. This was forced, violent oppression in the the form of enslavement to make them work. That was plan A. But guess what? God's blessing is so strong that that it cannot be tamped down. By the oppression on the outside. 
Pharaoh's oppressing, but God is blessing. And guess which one wins in the end? It doesn't matter if you're being oppressed at this moment. If God's blessing rests upon you, then you have grace to press on until you can get that oppression off of you. You see this in the text. That's plan A. Plan B, infanticide. Now, we're going to get into this in a second, all right? Plan C, widespread genocide. Israel is looking for a way out. And we are brought into this so that we can identify with them and so that we can realize that God identifies with us. In whatever ways you feel something of that weight of the fall upon you, you can be assured that as the story progresses and we see God caring and God acting, and God delivering and rescuing that he has not stopped being about that business. He has not stopped being that way in the world. They're looking for a way out. A way out of what? According to the text, look at the text. The affliction of heavy burdens, verse 11. Oppression and tyranny, verse 12. Ruthless enslavement and forced labor, verse 14. Coercive government and forced immorality, verses 15 through 16. Family devastation and genocide, verse 16. State-sponsored violence against their community, verse 22. But think about the obvious things that are not on the face of the text. If a people is living under this, what else would they want a way out of? They would want a way out of the terror that shrouded their existence for just being Hebrews. They wanted a way out of the cloud of despair and hopelessness that hung over their very existence. They wanted a way out of that sense of forsakenness and worthlessness from being treated this way for hundreds of years. The people, it's obvious on the text, but it has to be said, the people are not just free to walk away. They can't just improve themselves. They they can't just get smarter. That's not an option for the way out. That is no way out in this situation. The Lord must overcome the tight grip of Pharaoh. But we need a way out too, don't we? We need a way out too. We we need release, release from modern day Pharaohs. We don't have the same Pharaoh over us, but there are plenty of Pharaohs to go around, aren't there? We need a way out from underneath Pharaohs such as success and accomplishment. Make more bricks. No straw. What are you doing sitting around? Pharaoh. We need freedom from the Pharaoh of materialism and selfish hoarding. We need free from the Pharaoh of sex and sensuality. We need freedom from the Pharaoh of shallow notions of beauty. We need freedom from the Pharaoh of technology. You know you got problems when you are now working for your phone instead of your phone working for you. We need freedom from cultural and political orthodoxies. We need freedom from our own goodness because that is bondage. We need more than just the story of Exodus, friends. We need the God of Exodus. 
And that's what we have in the story. But make sure you don't think of it as a nice little story like an Aesop's fable. And forget that this God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he's available to his people as much now, even more than he was back then. But what does this text, as we read through it, tell us about God? What does it tell us about God? Do you see that this is a timeless problem? The issues of the Israelites, it's just a change in scenery. It's just a change of Pharaoh. We have our own Egypts. We have our own Pharaohs to wrestle with. And listen, we can't walk away from them any more than the Israelites could. We need to be set free. And that's biblical religion. That's biblical faith. You must be set free. I must be set free. We can't just walk away. We can't just turn over a new leaf. We can't just get a tune-up or or a a pick-me-up. We need something much more than that. We need the God of the Exodus. And what do we see about this God in the text? What does this text tell us about this God? I want you to hear me, Washingtonians. This God cares about the lives of the oppressed, lives in the womb, lives fresh out of the womb. He cares about life all the way through. And also he cares about the dignity of women. You see this in the text? This is not a political point. It's a biblical point. And this is right on the face of the text. Look at the series of heroines in this text. It is the women who are resisting the evil policies of Pharaoh. Look at who it is. Moses' mother, Moses' sister, Shifra, Pua, even Pharaoh's own daughter. These women are being raised up and they have a dignified role in the resistance to this evil law, which is no law at all. Augustine, that, this narrative frames them positively because they're resisting the infanticide and the mania of Pharaoh. These children are clearly identified as a result of the blessing of God, his faithfulness to his promise to Abraham. And God adds further blessing to the midwives who resist and refuse by giving them their own children. Pharaoh's edict is clearly portrayed as an evil affront to the blessing of God in which he attacks at the very point of blessing. Hear that. That life in the womb is the point of blessing. And it is portrayed as something demonic to attack the blessing in the womb. That is the clear narrative. This is the clear framing. We are getting the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And the seed of the serpent is out to kill and crush the seed of the woman. But we all know how that story ends because the serpent's head gets crushed. And this is a little foretaste of that crushing. Christians, look. Look at the whole text. And not just the proof texts that fit neatly into your political outlook. The scriptures wreck every human political outlook. To be more specific, scripture calls politically conservative Christians to refuse conserving things that God is judging in the end. Don't try to conserve it if God's judging it in the end. And scripture calls politically progressive Christians to refuse the false kind of progress that leads people further away from the kingdom, which God is also judging. 
He's calling all Christians of every political stripe out of political idolatry and into loyalty to the king as they are citizens in the democracy. Loyalty to the king as you are citizens in the democracy. Here's a hint. If you cannot identify a list of faults with your party, you're not a conservative. You're a captive. And you're not a progressive. You're a prisoner. I'm going to say that again. If you can't come up with a list of faults in your party, then you're not a conservative. You're a captive. And you're not a progressive. You're a prisoner. This text is showing us the kingdom of God going forward against the evil of this worldly governments that would seek to oppress the blessed people. God isn't, isn't trying to give them a message of how to improve life or manage life in Egypt. There's a difference between managing life in Egypt, improving life in Egypt, and getting out. God does not come to improve your life in Egypt. He doesn't come to give you amenities in Egypt. You can be on top of the world in Egypt and in the end, that way leads to death. Let me, you know what, you know what being on top of the world in Egypt sounds like? Having all the money. Having the clothes. Having the recognition. Having the career. Having the reputation. Not having Jesus. Your heart being caught up with all of those things. We know the narrative that's coming. Oh, shucks. I wish we were just back in Egypt. There was meat in the pot in Egypt. Man, things were nice in Egypt. They seem to have forgotten. Chapter one. That's Egypt. And it's delusional when you begin to perceive Egypt as a promised land. And we need help identifying the difference between bondage and slavery because it's not so obvious to us. We think we can see it clearly, but we, we really struggle to see the difference between bondage and slavery. And God steps in to give us new lenses. He comes to give us a way out. This whole situation is a timeless problem. There are different pharaohs. Egypt varies. But the God of the Exodus also gives us a priceless solution, which brings us to our second point. A priceless solution. Look, this begins with chapter two. With chapter two. We come now to the birth narrative of Moses, the mediator. All right, I want you to see that all is gloom and despair. It could not be worse. They are at rock bottom when we get to the end of chapter one. By the end of chapter one, every Egyptian has carte blanche to throw a little baby boy into the Nile River. Let that sink in. Look around. Let it be personal. The little boys. Someone marching in through here. Snatching them. Gone. It doesn't get worse than that. It doesn't get more bleak or evil than that. And it's into this scene that Moses the mediator is born. The way the narrator sets this up is incredible. Look the way he sets this up. He sets up the birth of Moses in this narrative context, and he's showing us the way in which the mediator is uniquely suited to be a mediator for his people because he was born into solidarity with his people. 
Moses was born into the same circumstances as those he was going to redeem. Moses knew what it was like to come into the world with a death sentence over his life. Moses was supposed to be aborted. He was not supposed to survive. Do you see this in the text? He was born into the conflict of his people, amidst the fears of his people, under the evil tyranny and abuse of power and oppression of his people. He was born under the same death sentence as his people. But the birth of Moses breaks through the despair and hopelessness of the narrative. His birth is the interruption that lets us know that Egyptian bondage will not last. The birth of one who will be an interruption to the bondage. That's what we have in this mediator. When his mother cannot hide him any longer, she prepares a basket for him. And through tear-strained face, she pushes him off into the danger. I want you to imagine that, moms, dads. Imagine the tearing of her very heart as she, put, she could not bear to do she couldn't let him be thrown in by the Egyptians, so she makes a little ark for him. She pushes him off, and with him, her heart goes. Can you imagine the tears streaming? Big sisters following along. What's going to happen to Moses? Her heart is broken, torn. We're invited into this to sense this with her. Moses, however, is the only child who will go into the Nile under death sentence and emerge alive. I'm going somewhere, y'all. <laughs> Though he was a common Israelite, he's adopted into the royal family of Egypt. In other words, Moses inhabits two worlds, a royal world and the world of those that he's going to come and redeem. Do you see how this context is preparing us to see the true mediator? When we fast forward to the opening of the New Testament, we meet another who was uniquely suited to be a mediator because he was born into the same troubles as his, as his people, born in solidarity with them. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He was born into the conflict of his people, amidst the fears of his people, under the evil tyranny of his people and abuse of power and oppression. He, too, had a death sentence hanging over his head. He, too, had an evil tyrant representative of the governments of this world pursuing him to the death as a child. He, too, had an even more stern death sentence hanging over his head. And it was the death sentence that was meant to hang over the lives of lawbreakers because this mediator was born under the law. Mm. Listen, the picture of Moses' mother fighting back the tears and the pain to reluctantly let go of her son barely scratches the surface of what must have been in the father's heart when he sent his son into the world what wondrous love is this? Oh, my soul. Oh, my soul. What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul, for my soul? Can you imagine the father who had the son at his right hand from eternity past sending him off and with him his heart, his very heart. But what we're going to see 
is Jesus is the one who will enter into the death trap and emerge alive. He's going to emerge alive. Listen, Jesus was the only one who would be able to undergo the cross, the death sentence, and emerge from that death trap alive. And now he is the trailblazer for his people. He punched a hole in the grave. That's what the great mediator has done. And in this narrative, we see that Moses was a common Israelite adopted into the royal family of Egypt. But Jesus was divine royalty adopting commoners into his family. He flips it. The birth of Christ, the ultimate mediator, breaks through the despair and hopelessness of this world, of the despair of humanity. His birth is the interruption that lets us know that bondage has an expiration date. That's what we have in him. Verse 10, the naming, the naming. In his name is his calling and destiny. Moses drawn out. And the one who was drawn out is going to be God's chief instrument of drawing them out. His mediatorial role is going to be captured in his name. And it would be the same for the next mediator, the greater mediator. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The Lord saves Yeshua. It's all in his name, the kind of mediator he will be. This was indeed what Moses was called to do to draw God's people out of Egyptian slavery. He was called to confront and defeat their oppressor. But Jesus comes and he defeats far greater oppressors. Moses was called to provide refreshment for God's people on their journey home. But what we're going to see is that Jesus provides greater refreshment for his people's journey home. Moses was called to mediate the covenant between God and his people, ascending Sinai and coming down with the organizing principle for his community. But Jesus is going to send down the organizing principle of his community when he ascends to glory to the very throne room of God and sends back down his spirit to organize his community. He was called to teach the people how to worship the Lord. And now Jesus is the chief worship leader. Moses was called to plead God's mercy on their behalf in the face of their idolatry. And Jesus becomes a great high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And to this very day sits at the right hand of the father pleading our case. For every accusation of the evil one, there are a thousand glories in the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus. He absolutely buries every accusation with the perfection of his finished work. His work is finished, but his ministry is not. He continues as your great high priest. That's good news. And that's what a mediator does. He was called Moses to establish the dwelling place of God in their midst through the tabernacle. Jesus became the dwelling place of God with man. And everything that we see in the mediator Moses is meant to lead us to the true and great mediator, Jesus Christ. Do you see today God's priceless solution to our timeless problem? It is Jesus. Don't, friends, today, don't mess around trying to improve life in Egypt. Don't mess around trying to manage life in Egypt. 
If you get your to-do list together and your schedule together and you never get out of Egypt, it will all be for nothing. But you can be a hot mess on the way to the promised land and God will see you there. I'm going to close with this. I've been reading through the, the uh, biography of Frederick Douglass, the magisterial biography of Frederick Douglass by, by historian David Blight. It's an awesome biography. I was freshly reminded of Frederick Douglass's strong, rich, robust Christian faith as he sought for justice. But one of the things that Douglass said that I think is profound and it has everything to do with this text is this. He appealed to, to, to his Christian friends, his Christian brothers and sisters, and he appealed to those who weren't Christians. And he said, you know, everybody's an abolitionist. Everybody has this gut level impulse in their soul to be free. Everybody's an abolitionist. But the question is, will you be an abolitionist for others? Will you long for the freedom of others? Will you be as invested in the freedom of others as you are in your own? And that's the question I want to leave with you today. As we think about the Exodus, it's not just about your personal freedom from slavery of various sorts. Slavery to sin. Slavery to the opinions of other peoples. Slavery to pleasing people. Slavery to your own successes and your own your own resume. No, no, no. It's not just about you being free from slavery. It's about you cultivating a longing in your own soul to see other people free from those same things. Most of all, free from sin through Jesus Christ. This is the mission. And guess what? It's not just me and you who are free from sin. It's we who are free from sin. And what we're going to begin to think about is what it looks like to be the kind of community that's in touch with our great redemption and the kind of lives we ought to live and the kind of relationships we ought to hold with one another as a result of this great salvation. So let's prepare our hearts as we work through the book of Exodus and lean into the fullness of God's truth as he holds it out to us in Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word and thank you so much for your spirit. And we pray that you would impress these truths on us in fresh ways that you would help us to lay hold and to delight and to be free, Lord. We pray that you would set us free. Help us to identify the enslavements in our lives and help us to love one another enough to help, help each other to see where we can't see and help us all to call out for the God who hears and acts. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.